Hey, Jay, I've got a Shatterstar question. Is that like two regular questions presented in parallel? Uh, no, but now I kind of wish it were. Well, what, what were you wondering? It's about his name. I know that on Mojo World, his given name was Gavidra7. Right. And Shatterstar was sort of his stage name. Yeah, I think that pretty much covers it. Okay, but in the new miniseries, he's going by Ben Gavidra. What's up with that? I'm pretty sure that that's because of Benjamin Russell. Who's Benjamin Russell? He's Shatterstar. Kind of. Uh, I thought Shatterstar was Gavidra 7. He is. He's just also, um... Okay, there was this guy in Boston named Benjamin Russell who was physically identical to Shatterstar, only Benjamin Russell had been in a coma ever since his mutant powers manifested. So the name is Homage? No, not exactly. It's... <sighs> Look, I'm gonna be honest, this era is really, really not my strong suit. You might need to go straight to the source for this one. Mojo World? Fabian Nicesa. That's a considerable relief. Uh, Fabian, are you there? I am, but I'm not the source you're looking for. I know nothing. Oh, uh, okay. Jay, it looks like it's up to you after all. Oh god, okay. Um, so, as I understand it, the Games Master managed to convince Shatterstar that he was just a manifestation of Benjamin Russell's powers, not a real person. Ouch, that's rough. I know, right? Anyway, Shatterstar was still grappling with this apparent revelation when he was kidnapped by Mojo and then killed in the Mojoverse. He's dead? What? No, no, of course he's not dead. He just had a miniseries. But you said he died. Yeah, but it's a superhero comic. Spiral managed to corral Shatterstar's soul to Benjamin Russell's hospital room and help it merge with Russell's comatose body, which Shatterstar's been riding around ever since. What?! I'm Jay Editon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 250 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. 250? That is a milestone. But you know what's even cooler? We have a guest for you, gentle listeners. Yeah, we have with us today in our um, imaginary studio... Fabian Nicieza, whose work we've been covering for a long time and who is the, the architect of the X-Line as we've been looking at it lately on the show. Fabian, thank you so much for being on the show. It's a pleasure to be here, guys, although i got to be honest with you, as you were explaining Ben Russell, um, I almost threw my headset off and ran away from my laptop as quickly as I could. Um, <laughs> is, was that real? Was that serious? Like all those continuity points? <laughs> As far as I know, I will admit, I, I actually had to get someone else to walk me through that earlier today so I could write this. Um, so shout out to Charlie of the Young Ones. Um, Charlie, I'm sorry you had to read that. I never I never read those issues. I, I, I guess it was Jeff Loeb writing them. I'm not even sure who wrote them. I, I, usually, usually after I get fired from a book, I don't read it anymore afterwards. Um, so I'd heard that they were doing stuff like that, but I had no, no understanding, no knowledge of any of it. I didn't read any of it. Now that I know... I'm really glad I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> if you've been listening to us, the context in which you're going to be familiar with Fabian most immediately is um, as the writer on X-Men and X-Force. But by the time he was on those books, he had been writing New Warriors for a fairly long time. Um, and it was also the the writer behind the legendary 
perhaps greatest, perhaps best known comic ever made, NFL Super Pro. I've actually never read it. Fabian, what, what's the deal with NFL Super Pro? I haven't either. I'm sorry. I just, I just really like the name. Editor stops you in the hallway and says, I need a favor. And I say, <laughs> okay. And they say, you got to help us get this thing together because we're having a hard time getting the NFL to approve it. So I say, oh, seriously? And they go, yeah, please. There'll be perks. I go, okay, fine. Um, I, 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 if I'd said no, that from the editor, it would have been, it would have just kicked up the ladder because the NFL had been had been really pressuring to get quote unquote big name talent on it. And, and since I was writing X Men at the time, the, the the NFL was willing to, and I knew football, which quite frankly, it's hard to find a lot of comic book people back in 1992 or so who who knew sports. Um, so. Uh, so I did it. It was basically doing my company a favor and having to catch grief for it for the next 25 freaking years. <laughs> yeah, sorry to have contributed to yes, that. Yes, there you go. Just another drop in the bucket. <laughs> uh, for what it's worth, it's it's still really hard to find comics people who know sports. I was an editor <laughs> for a pretty long time and ended up um, working on a licensed lacrosse. First of all, there's professional lacrosse, which I didn't know until I was working on this comic. But um, yeah, that was, was also interesting approval style. Yeah, it, it, they all are. And the NFL, actually, the NFL wasn't that bad to work with, but it, it just, it never turned into what anyone was hoping it was going to turn into back then. I, I I told them I'd do the one shot and that was it. And the one shot actually sold really well. So I made a really nice chunk of change on it because of royalties. Um, but then they asked me to do the monthly book and I was like, no way in hell can I even fit it into my schedule. And we basically finagled four issues. So I did four issues. And honestly, it was all, you know, I'm working on staff at the company at the time. So it, it, you know, I'm, I'm a company guy. So I'm just doing, I'm doing my coworkers and my company a little bit of a favor. It wasn't exactly like it was, you know, an emotionally bonding experience. All right. So, and in, in addition on the credits list, you also wrote, you know, Gambit, uh, Magneto, Thunderbolts, X-Men Forever, and some series about a guy who looks kind of like Spider-Man who we don't cover here. Yeah. And we don't talk about that here. Although Cable's in that book too, you know. That's true. And we do love Cable. Wade did wear Marvel Girls 1960s green miniskirt outfit for a few panels. So that really ties into X-Men continuity. That is true. <laughs> but it doesn't make him an X-Men. And thank you, by the way, for validating that. That is that is our, our official position is that we have to draw the line somewhere. And, so, and somehow somehow Deadpool is not an X-Men and we won't cover him has become the hill that we decided to fight and die on. Who says he's an X-Men, though? I mean, is... I mean, he could be an X-Men if he joined the team, but he's not a mutant. And and that, you know, anyone who says he is a mutant, you know, is wrong. He's not. So, um, so, but he could join the X-Men if they were decided to make that kind of a wrong decision over there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess he was on X-Force briefly, but, you know, that's X-Force. It's not X-Men. It gets to the point where you're splitting hairs. I don't know. But we're, we're happy that you're on our side is our point. <laughs> yeah. Oh, look, if you're not picking through the rubble of a devastated Xavier mansion that's been destroyed for the 17th time, you're not really an X-Men. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so one of the things we've been covering a lot of because we're in the early 90s is a lot of the big crossovers. We finished Executioner's Song a while ago. Um, there was Fatal Attractions, of course, and we're coming up on the Phalanx Covenant and Jason, my personal 90s favorite crossover, Age of Apocalypse. And you had you were like central to so, so many of those. Um, yeah, actually – if 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 we have to be honest, um, I was far less central 
to to the development and breaking down of Phallix Covenant and Age of Apocalypse than I was to Executioner's Song and Fatal Attractions. Um, by the time we were hitting Phalanx Covenant, that was issue thirty something of X Force. Um, I'd already, I was already at the point where I was doing like six books a month with a full time job uh, at Marvel. So I, I really was backing off, and and it was a, a point in time where we were. I think I was already almost into my second year of tenure on the books, and and the relationship between me, Bob, and Scott was not was not working in a way that. Uh, inserting myself into the mix too heavily was um worthwhile for me so uh that the Fallon's covenant especially was really almost all scott um and and um and i did not have much to do with the development of the crossover one of the impressions i get of that era from stuff you said from you know what i've read from different accounts is that the 90s in general were, were defined by a lot of sort of people pulling from, from crossing directions on the X-Books. And given the amount of, of choreography that it must have taken to get those massive intricate crossovers out, and even just to have two interlocking books coming out semi-monthly, um, how much sort of overarching coordination was there? How much, how much did you guys end up needing to work around each other? Um, a, a lot, a lot. Um, but I, I wouldn't say that it was usually very well coordinated. Um, I, I think that, um, part of the, part of the strength of the X books back then was also part of its weakness and that it was very much isolated within its own world, uh, because the editor preferred it that way. Um, so, so it, often it felt like the X books were barely interacting with Marvel universe titles. Um, and, and as a result, it, it, it meant that we didn't involve or engage, engage ourselves in what they were doing, but, but we were overly, um, overly complicated in, 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 in our own little universe. And, um, the, the biggest frustration that I had as a writer, which I've said many times is that just my working method is not, was not the working method that, that Bob and Scott had. And, and that's not to denigrate their working method in the least. It's just that I, I prefer, long-term planning and structure and, and subplot development and building it over the course of time and having payoffs and having those payoffs, you know, flow into a, another arc or another 12 issue flow. Um, and, and, and the two of them are very, very, um, uh, very spontaneous. And, and, and sometimes that's a negative, but often it's a real positive. Um, and, and the two of them were, there was never, there was never an idea that you had on Tuesday that couldn't be replaced by what they thought was a better idea on Thursday. Um, and that made it, that made it challenging for me because it, it prevented me from being able to write in the way that I felt was, was, I was better suited for. Um, so you take that internal kind of dynamic and you combine it with the company exerting just tremendous amounts of pressure on Bob to generate revenue at a time where we were bought by McAndrews and Forbes and scumbag Ron Perlman was, um, was was owning the company and they were trying to drive revenues up as much as possible because they were going to take the company public and sell stock. So, you know, our, our budgetary expectations on a, on a yearly basis just 
constantly kept increasing. And, and the sin, the sin of it is that we constantly kept exceeding them. Uh, so they kept increasing them even more. So, so it just became very problematic because there was a lot of, uh, you know, while there was a lot of churning within the group doing the creative work, there was a lot of um, external, uh, you know, exertions being placed upon everybody. Um, so on the one hand, everything's selling fantastic. And we had a whole new legion of readers because we had a whole bunch of kids reading the comics now as a result of the cartoon and the toys. Um, our sales are almost double what the X-Books were selling in the 80s. Um, and it, that's all great. Um, we're number one book, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, the other side of the coin is that, you know, your brain's leaking out your ears while you're doing it, you know? Yeah. Being at the height, uh, being, being one of the central writers of the X-Men at literally the height of their popularity. I mean, basically ever like the nineties were the X-Men's era. I can only imagine what that must've been like. And it seems like that must've been especially a strange place to be picking up after these enormous, you know, legendary runs by Chris Claremont and to a lesser extent, Louise Simonson. And it's clear from all of the um, just all of the the continuity nods you put in that like you were quite familiar with that. What was it like just stepping into that pre-existing almost almost empire and having to decide, okay, what do I run with? What do I come up with that's new that I've always wanted to see? How do I balance that with the stuff you were just describing? All of like the the business expectations. Um, well, you know, I, to be honest, as far as X Men's concerned, I I I had a little bit of a reprieve. In that regard, I mean, I'm the first person to have their name in the writer's credit that wasn't Chris Claremont in 17 years when I finished up the uh, the Muir Islands storyline. And like, I think it was 280. I scripted 279. I, I, I thought it was because Chris was on vacation and, and couldn't make the script in time. And I found out later that it was, wasn't because of that. It was because the editor and him were having problems. And then I had to write 280 and wrap up a story without really knowing how Chris wanted to wrap it up. Uh, that, that was much more awkward for me and uncomfortable for me than taking over X-Men with issue number 12, only because Chris had left with issue three and, and there was, you know, almost a full year of stories with Byrne and, and other people involved with Jim Lee and Will Spertasio plotting it. So to me, I wasn't taking over for Chris on X-Men, really. I was taking over for Jim and Wills and John, and that was a much easier, <laughs> a much easier job for me to do. Um, taking over for Chris right after issue three would have been a little bit uh, more daunting because I, I, I really respect Chris a lot. I always have. Uh, I, I, I don't think that He's flawless, and I don't think he's perfect, but but I think he, he's he's an excellent writer who who wrote that book for a tremendous long time, tremendously long time, and kept it viable and the number one book in the industry for you know seventeen years, which is ridiculous. Um, so, so you know, I I did not want to I did not want to disrespect the run he had on the book, uh, nor did I want to be encumbered by it or hampered by it. So I just, I really just tried to write the book the way I thought the fans would want to read it, which most certainly was with a little bit of Claremontian touch, uh, but, but take the stories in, in, in a little more, a little more straightforward, dynamic forward moving direction. Um, that, that was my desire to, to do, to do faster paced, stories that 
hearkened a little bit more back to the the you know the X Men one hundred to one twenty five one thirty roughly. Um, give it a little more of that Cockrum burn Claremont propulsion. Uh, I, I thought as a reader of the books for a very, very long time, I thought that there were too many lulls and sags where the book felt like it was meandering a lot to me. Um, and, and I wanted to, to try to, to just try to make it, a, a, a pump it up a little bit more. The fact we were having so many young readers come in uh, was a reason to justify that creatively because younger readers are going to want uh, just, you know, more, more energy, more action, more drive. And, and the early nineties books were doing that a lot because of the fact that we had a lot of young readers coming into the industry at that point. Yeah. Jay and I have um, started to describe aspects of this era as like, we've started describing the era as the feelings and explosions era. And <laughs> yeah, it just seems like everything, there's always stuff going on, whether it's whether it's action, whether it's emotional drama, whether it's conspiracies, like that sort of propulsiveness, exactly. Like that's so emblematic of the early 90s, I think, and of your work in particular. And as somebody who was around 10 or 12 at that, uh, during that time, I was loving the hell out of most of that. Once I got over the whole um, New Mutants not being New Mutants anymore when Rob Liefeld took over. But then you brought it back with X-Force. Well, I mean, and, and the, to tell you the truth, I... I, I I did not really change a single thing from what X-Force was according to how Rob wanted to do it. I, I just was writing it myself now, which meant I got the, I got the plot as well as script it, which really changes the kinds of the kind, the way you are telling your story as much as anything. Um, so, so, uh, you know, I, I think X-Force was X-Force from issue one all the way to when I stopped with issue 43. Um, and, and, and I did not want to change the, the, the dynamic of how Rob had pitched the book, because that was a very important pitch. The new mutants was ending because these kids weren't in school anymore. They were going to be a pseudo paramilitary force, but it was still going to be a lot of teenage soap opera too, you know? So, so I tried to approach it that way. Um, you know, and, and with X-Men, I, I do like the explosions and feelings thing. Often they had feelings while things were exploding, which was really great. And sometimes <laughs> things exploded while they were feeling. It was always a mix. It was always great. <laughs> uh, and, and look, we, the, I think they were a lot more soap, soap operatic back then than they are now for sure. I, I think that there's a false level of maturity to a lot of the comics now. Um, that, that, that just make them pretty dry and boring to me. But I'm also 57 years old and I shouldn't be reading this crap anymore. Um, and, and as a result, I don't read this crap much anymore. Um, but, but back then, we had multiple masters we had to serve in terms of our audience. We knew we had a really big 10 to 16-year-old contingent. Um, and many of them were new and fresh to the books. Um, we knew we had a very strong 18 to, to 30 contingent that had come in during during the 80s um, and, and late 70s. And, and we also knew we had a few over over, you know, 30, over 40 readers who may have been familiar with the comics since the 60s. Um, you look at what your percentages of your audiences are and you try to craft a book that does as good as it possibly can at appeasing as many of those audiences as possible. And, and the, the running joke at Marvel was always like DeFalco would say, your book has to be, you, anybody from the ages of eight to 80 has to be able to read your book, which is a joke because that's an impossible, you know, spectrum to try to cover. Um, 
but but much more so than now, especially with with the loss of the newsstand um, uh, as a as a viable um, platform for selling the books. Um, the the books now sold much more to older readers, and, and they're written that way too. And I think it's a shame because I think that it, it loses out on a lot of the excitement and the adventure and the action that is supposed to be a hallmark of these comic books. So something that brought in a lot of readers around our age, and I think a lot of readers when you were writing the Central X titles, was the X-Men cartoon. And normally we hold listener questions till later in the episode, but there's one that, that dovetails so nicely with what you were talking about that I kind of want to throw it in now. Um, this is from someone named Cole Weathers on Twitter who asks, what other media influenced your run on and your writing on X-Force? And I'd extend that to basically say, what what media outside of comics would you say colored that era for you? Oh, honestly, nothing. I, I don't. I've never been a writer that you can't tell you can't tell what movie I saw last week by what plot I hand in next week. Um, and, and, and there's plenty of writers who you can tell that. Um, and I'll even include Chris in that too. Um, there, you know, there's no way that uh, the brood isn't the re- result of Chris seeing alien, you know? Um, so, so anyway, I just, um, I, I, I never have, worked on my books that way. I've never been influenced by what's happening in television necessarily or movies or anything like that. I, I, I just, I'm more influenced by my, my experience in the sandbox of, of the continuity of the, the Marvel universe, or if I'm writing for DC, the continuity of the DC universe, cause I'm very familiar with that too, or was very familiar with that too. Um, so, so, uh, you know, I, I, the, the answer is nothing. N- nothing influenced me other than the body of work that existed on the X-Men title, who I thought the characters were and what I thought they should be doing, what kinds of stories I wanted to tell, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, um, so, so, so the cartoon was getting a huge influx of new readers, which was fantastic for us, but we were not trying to do anything to a to necessarily accommodate those readers by making the comic more cartoon-like, if you know, if you know what I mean, we weren't trying to make it like the animated show, even though we knew a, a lot of new readers were coming into the book as a result of it. Um, we were just we were just aware that that meant that every issue you had to try to identify who all your characters were, what their powers were, all of that stuff before you had that that what they currently do with that super exciting typeset splash page that they have that tells you what's gone on before. (laughs) You mentioned going into comics continuity, and one of the things that I love about your work on X-Men is how deeply you reach into that stuff. Um, I am a continuity nerd. Part of why we started doing this podcast is that both of us really love the old, weird, tangled threads, and when writers reach into those, pull something out and come up with an amazing story out of some throwaway detail. And I know you, you mentioned being a fan before you were writing the book. Were there any particular threads or any particular story hooks that you were looking to get a hold of um, when you when you started writing X-Men proper? Well, yeah, unfortunately, it always got derailed after two, three months constantly, <laughs> all the time. Um, I, I definitely wanted to do a lot more with Sinister, which was obvious from all of my, my failed attempts to do more with Sinister. Um, I wanted to do more with, with the, the Shi'ar um, and, and do more Scott-focused stories by having introduced Adam X 
and, and what my plans were for, with Adam X and the Shi'ar and the Star Jammers and all this other stuff that I wanted to do. Um, those were those were the two big linchpins. We knew we were going to get Magneto off the table by issue 25, so that meant that I didn't have to think about that. I didn't have to worry about that. Scott wanted to try to introduce more new stuff, which is good too. I think that's very important also. Um, the, the new stuff I tried to introduce my first six or eight issues just wasn't clicking for a wide variety of reasons, you know, some of which was me, some of which was not. Um, so as a result, I didn't, I didn't further develop characters that, that, that I had. I mean, a, a character like Threnody, which I introduced, would have had a really interesting backstory if I'd had the respect to do it right and do it better. Um, one of, one of my issues over the, all of my writing back then is that I, I was in, I was doing way too much work. Um, and, and it, and it showed if not on the page, although I'm sure it did for a lot of people, it showed in my own brain. <laughs> so, so I, I feel in, at the time I felt it, but certainly in hindsight, I feel like I gave too many potentially good ideas, short shrift. And then the ideas I had that I didn't give short shrift to got derailed editorially, which really reduced my enthusiasm to develop anything. So the, my last year and a half on the X-Men is really just f- following along with whatever they felt like doing and then just shrugging my shoulders and going, OK, and I'll try to make I'll try to make the best of this Fallon's Covenant. I'll try to make the best of this, you know, Age of Apocalypse thing, et cetera, et cetera, um, b- because it wasn't. It, it wasn't I wasn't going to get to pan out on any of the things I was trying to, to do. And I'd already I wouldn't say given up because I was focused every issue. I'm focusing on what the issue needs. But I, I did certainly surrender being the driving force or trying to be the driving force behind initiating the ideas, the plots for, for what was going on in the books. Fair, yeah, and I can totally see how how frustrating that would be, um, especially when okay. So you brought up Adam X, and I, I know Adam X, um, the third Summers brother mystery that he was intended to be kind of the the revelation to <gasps> is is he pretty was? well a surprise. He was um, wait, you know, was it surprise? Surprise! <laughs> no one knew. <laughs> but as far as Adam X, like that's I think that's the part that a lot of people talk about. But as far as the character, like we we didn't get to see a whole lot of him, like. There's his introductory story. There's the there's where he meets up with Shatterstar in the temporary murder world. There's the thing with him and um and Grandpa Summers. But so I've always wanted to ask Fabian, continuity aside, how do you see Adam X as a character? Like, what's his motivation? What's the core of his personality? What makes Adam X Adam X aside from the role that he was in within the X Men plot? Well, the way that I thought of him, um, because. I came up with the idea of an an mysterious brother before I came up with him, but not by much, just by a couple months. Um, I threw the, I threw the, some, the brothers line by sinister into that issue. Um, mostly for fun to see how, how it played and Bob loved it. So I then broke down what I thought it should be, how I thought it should work and what the story was going to be. I told you, I, I I planned, I tried to plan this stuff out. So he was going to appear in about four six different issues uh, of the of a couple different books and then he was either going to have a, a, a long four to six part x-men story or he was going to have his own miniseries i preferred the miniseries um and all of it kind of got approved and never was able to be consummated um but it, it, 
my in hindsight, my biggest regret is is introducing them as 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 a bit of a you know as a bit of a almost borderline parody and and joke to the nineties. Um, and the problem is that he would have played like that on Earth, but if we saw him out in the Shi'ar world, it would have been a completely different matter. And his costume is was based on a, an amalgam of Shi'ar stuff and, and Earth stuff. Um, and I did that on purpose too. And if you notice every appearance he had, he became slightly less absurd and bombastic. So that by the time we got to the issue of X-Men where he's with Scott's grandfather, that, that that's a lot more of a somber issue. Um, and, and, and then finally I got to basically tell more of his story in Captain Marvel number three, which was me just giving the middle finger to Bob by, by revealing stuff in an issue of Captain Marvel of all places. Um, the, the, the way I saw the character was pretty simple. He, he was an incredibly angry Luke Skywalker. That's what he was. Um, and, and that's what he was going to be. Um, he, he was, he was the guy who was going to inherit the mantle of an empire who never knew it, never thought he deserved it, never would have wanted it, um, all of that stuff. And, and he was going to have to do it because it would have been for the betterment of trillions of people if he did. Um, so so it, was, it was really an ascension story where, where you know, the, the pauper becomes king. Um, and, and I had the whole backstory worked out. I had it all planned out. Jeff Johnson was going to draw the miniseries. Jeff, Jeff even did like three or four sample pages. Um, I still have two of them down in my basement with my art collection. Um, and, um, and it just never happened. And it just never happened. It was an incredible frustration. Um, because frankly, you know, and then, so, and I got to take some of that blame absolutely for sure, because frankly, his initial appearances didn't generate enough enthusiasm among the readers to make it happen. And that was my fault in hindsight. Um, you know, whereas like something like dead, like Deadpool's first appearance generated so much enthusiasm that bringing him back was a no brainer. And, and that having that generate a miniseries was a no brainer. Um, it, it was more of a sell to try to, to try to get Bob to approve it. And, and, and you know, it, it, it wasn't something that ultimately that, that he got, excited about but again it's frustrating because you, you're pitching something as a plan and you're only a third of the way through that plan before the editor loses his interest and his attention and it just sort of hangs there limp like like a piece of fruit that's not plucked and it just starts to wilt on the vine and that's really really frustrating because you think that would have been a pretty damn good piece of fruit to eat if you just picked it when it was ripe you know um so, so, you know, that was the, fr- the frustrating thing. But I also i have never been a fan of, of this is what I would have done or this is what I plan to do. I mean, honestly, we're talking about it in hindsight just because the, the third brother thing became its own odd little X mystery um, among fans and stuff. Um, but, but normally if it didn't happen in print, as far as I'm concerned, it didn't happen, you know. Um, so, so I don't talk too much about what I wanted his story to be. Uh, I just try to explain to people that absolutely, yes, there was a story there and I thought it was a pretty good one too. Um, and, and I just never got a chance to tell it. Speaking of translating from print, one of the stranger parts of podcasting about comics for us is having to consider sort of the audio implications of things that were used to only existing in text. What 
do his word balloons sound like? Like, what sound are they supposed to be evoking? Because he's one of those characters who's got his own specific word balloons. And with with some of them, like, with, with, with some of those characters, like, there's sort of an obvious auditory direction to take the appearance. I cannot figure out Adam X's. Um, I, I really wanted it to connote an accent. So he had accented English. Um, so it, it sounded a little bit raspier. Um, and, and it was, it was a heavy accent. If I were casting it as a voice actor, he would not have been speaking clean English. Um, because, because, you know, English was his 50th language. So it wasn't something that he was very well versed in. Um, he'd only been on earth for a couple months before we saw him for the first time. Um, so, so that, you know, that, that's kind of how, how I, I was picturing it. So, uh, a slightly raspy, even even borderline higher pitched, um, uh, to almost connote a squawk, but not too overt, not not excessive, you know. Um, and, and it's you know it's no no different than why I, I gave Deadpool odd word balloons too. Just trying to create a little bit of a differentiator that that allows you as a writer to to focus on how you're thinking about the character, but also gives the reader the idea that there's something. Um, there's something different or exotic about it because of the word balloon uh, shapes, you know? That makes a lot of sense, actually. And yeah, now I'm going back to like all of the previous Adam X appearances we've read. I'm like, okay, yes, that. Gotcha. That's that's awesome. Um, so we've been focusing very specifically on one character, but to look at things a lot more generally. So you were writing X-Men, you were writing X-Force, you were writing a lot of, of uh, solo books and stuff like that. What is X-Men to you? As a writer, was X-Men a concept you were trying to put forward? Was it the bits of continuity you were bringing forth? Was it specific characters? Like, if you had to just sort of sum up what it was to you and what you wanted to kind of evoke with your work, how would you describe that? Um, you know, again, I, I think it just harkens back to what I said earlier, that I was really trying to find my path, and I'm not succeeding, by the way, but trying to find my path to getting the same feel in the book that I had as a reader reading, you know, X-Men 100 to 130, you know, 135. Um, getting that same sense of family, of purpose, and of danger and drama. Um, and, and I thought that the books had that it, it, to a perfectly paced and pitched degree back then. Um, and, and a lot of it, again, is the age you are when you're reading something. Nothing, nothing is as good... If you're reading superhero comics, nothing is as good as it was between the ages of 12 and 16. Um, that's when the bestest comics ever in the whole wide world were coming out, no matter what. Um, so, so, so to me, the, those books epitomized what I, what I thought an X-Men book should be. Um, they picked up on anything that Roy Thomas had done with the team in the 60s and, and enhanced it, improved it. You know, um, and and I wanted to try to do that, too, because I thought I felt as a reader, having read it for so long, because um, I got, I have a bunch of issues from the late 60s in my collection. I, I have some some early issues that I got at flea markets and stuff like that way before Giant Size X-Men even came out. So I had about 10 to 14 issues of X-Men from the 60s in, in my in my collection. Um and and they were never one of my favorites because they were never anyone's favorite back then. Um, but but uh, but they certainly had they certainly had a, a separate tone and, and feel from other Marvel books. 
Uh, part of that was their sense of otherness and their isolation uh, and and the, the, the degree to which they tried to be superheroes to a population that didn't trust them and didn't want them to be superheroes. And, and I thought Chris and, and Dave and Chris and John really amped that up too, uh, really, really well. And, and that's what I really wanted to do. I wanted to tell more more propulsive, action-driven, high-stakes stories of a group of of people who are no longer teenagers anymore, um, who, who are trying to fight the good fight for people who don't want them to be fighting for them. You know, that's an interesting conflict. Um, doing things for people who don't appreciate that you're doing it for them. Um, and, and I thought that that was the, that was the, the, to me just symbolized that if I was given an X-Men book tomorrow, I'd probably approach it the same way. Um, which is exactly why Hickman is getting the X-Men books tomorrow. Um, so, so it, you know, it, it, it was what I wanted to do. It was very difficult to do because at the point I took over with Scott, you had 25 characters living at the mansion minimum, mm-hmm. right? And, and and everyone's stepping on everyone's toes and everyone's walking to, into each other when they're in the bathroom. And it, it's just, it's, it was exhaustingly overpopulated. So following up on that, um, something that I, th- there's one question that we kind of go back to with everyone who comes on the show. Um, and that's what's your definitive era or team of the X-Men? If, if I had never heard of the X-Men, if I'd never read the X-Men, what's the issue or the arc that you'd hand me and say, okay, this, this is what they are at their core. Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I, 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 I don't know that I'd uh, give you an issue or even a single arc just because I thought that, that, you know, the run, the run of Chris and Dave and Chris and John had defined it for me as a reader. Um, I also thought the run that Chris had with Paul Smith was fanta- fantastic also. Yeah. Um, oh, God, yeah. But, but it, you know, John, it just showed what an, what the artist could bring to Chris in terms of discipline and, and pacing and, and, and and even even the emotion he could bring to the characters based on what the art was giving him, uh, the, the the issues he did with Paul were great. Um, but but I, I think as a reader, even more than the Phoenix Saga, um, I, I I really look back at the the Magneto uh, Antarctic story um, leading into the Savage Land. Um, I, I, I like I enjoyed the Living Daylights out of that. I really did. Um, and I loved issue 100 too. I thought issue 100 was great. Uh, but but if you you know if you ask me one issue, one single issue, uh, I, I would probably give you the God Loves Man Kills graphic novel. Um, yes, it, that because is because that that encompassed all the various traits of what the X Men are about. You know, it was a very important story that had a, a very important subject matter. It was treated intelligently and and it was a well-crafted story but it also had action and it had big stakes and it had big movement and big motion uh i always think the x-men should have big things in it too you know um Mm -hmm. because that that is a manifestation of their power which is exactly what you need in order to generate fear and uncertainty among the general population you know um so so i was never a huge fan of the mutants who had powers that you know, this mutant can turn a doorknob. Oh, wow. That's great. Let's make him a new mutant character. It's doorknob Turner. That's not, you know, that rarely had the kind of emotional impact that the book, (laughs) the book needs, I think thematically. Not, not a cypher fan then I take it. 
Um, no, not really. No, no. And I, <laughs> I mean, I like Doug and I like what Louis did with Doug, but I was not a Cypher fan because it, it, it was such a passive power. Um, and, and in my opinion, it, it, I had problems with New Mutants. I really did. I was not a huge New Mutants fan and I read every freaking issue of New Mutants, but I was never a huge fan of the book. Um, and, and that goes from Chris's run even to Louise's run. And I, I love and respect them both tremendously as writers. I just never liked the book. Um, because it was always too soft for me. It was always too passive. And bringing a character like, like Doug into it only makes you focus on the passive side of it. You know what I mean? So to me, he's like a downer. He's a Debbie Downer. He, he, he just draws everyone down to his level, you know? Um, so so I, I get that in conjunction in a team book, a power like that could be useful. But, you know, um, it, it, it never worked for me that well. Let's, it's not a visually oriented power. And I mean, I think one of one of the things that we've seen X-Men creative teams struggle with over the years is that the powers that are the coolest or the most useful from a real world frame of reference aren't necessarily the ones that work best in a comic book. Yeah, yeah. No, and look, there's ways to try to make things visual. Um, that it, That's not always easy, but there's ways to do it. I created a character for New Warriors. It was one of my favorite characters I've ever created for, for comics. And that was uh, a, a bad guy called Mathematic. And he was a mathematic telepath, a math path. <laughs> and, and I tried always, the few times I, I used him, to find very visual ways to make you see his powers. Um, and and, and I, I worked at that. So if I had to do that every month, it probably would have driven me nuts. So maybe, maybe it's good that he was like, a, you know, a villain that only appeared three, four times in a 50-issue run or whatever, three times, I think. Um, but... but uh, Again, there is a way to try to do that stuff and translate it into a visual medium. You know, Doctor Strange is all about a lot of hocus pocus stuff that you don't, you know, you you don't even know what the magic is doing. But, you know, Steve Ditko sure made it look cool. You know, so Frank Brunner sure made it look cool. You know, Right. Man, so talking about New Warriors, I mean, obviously, that was one of the, the books you were you were most known for. And you were writing it simultaneous to X-Force and like on the surface – you know, there are similarities to be found. These are both teams of young adults who come from varied backgrounds and have conflicts within the team, but they do the right thing together. So aside from the big X on one of the team's names, if we're looking at the New Warriors and we're looking at at X-Force, and this is relevant for our show because we're actually right about to get to the Child's Play crossover, like who are those teams in relation to one another? Like what makes one X-Force, one New Mutants aside from you know, the larger mutant presence on one of them. Um, I, I think I would, I would almost characterize it as, uh, as the new warriors were the high school diversity group that tried to, you know, be nice and, and do the right thing. And X force was the jocks who were looking to bully people in the hallway. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the, uh, the, the the dynamic is is pretty was pretty simple to me. I never really had a problem differentiating them in my mind. Um, the new warriors wanted to be heroes and 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 do the kinds of things that could shortcut the establishment ways of being heroes. So you know the authoritarian heroes like FF or, or Avengers. Um, X Force, uh, you know, evolved into. Um, a group that wanted to fight for what they believed in. Um, and, and 
That meant fighting anyone. Didn't matter whether it was Shield and War Machine or whether it was Magneto or whatever. Um, they were going to fight for what was right. Um, and and the New Warriors really was in order to do right, we may have to fight. And those are two very different philosophies to approach your book with. So I never had a problem differentiating the kinds of stories I wanted to tell in the two books, uh, the motivations of the characters. There, there could have been a lot of similarities and, and, and simpatico behaviors between some of them because they were all teenagers, you know. But but I, I don't think, I could be wrong, but I don't think that you could look at a New Warriors story and think it's an X-Force story and vice versa. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I completely agreed. And um, and what, what you're saying makes makes perfect sense. And I think that's especially illustrated when you have characters that, quote, could be on one team versus the other. Like, you know, Firestar certainly has a great deal of history with the X side of things. But yeah, she's totally a New Warriors character for exactly, exactly. the reasons you're describing. Yeah, yeah. She would not have been a good X-Force character um, because she would not have wanted to, to fight first and, and, and try to solve problems later, you know? Or yeah. to fight as a way of solving her problems. And that that also makes me think a bit of the way that the MLF was handled under Rainfire. It almost seems like if there's a spectrum from New Warriors to X-Force to the MLF in terms of like level of, I guess, aggression. And I'm thinking specifically of the brief period of time where Farrell and Tempo almost trade places because each of them seems to be more suited to one of those philosophies. And I love yeah, that. Yeah, I would have. Uh, yeah, I want. Uh, did I even do that? Did I get to do that? No, I, I would have wanted Tempo on the, on the X-Force team and I wanted to get rid of Farrell because I didn't like her. Um, she was pretty useless. Um, but, but I don't remember why it didn't happen. I had a whole storyline planned for after age of apocalypse that was going to deal with all the rain fire and MLF stuff. Danny was going to be leading the MLF, but she was really working undercover, uh, the whole time and all this other stuff. Um, and, and it just didn't pan out. Um, one, one of my, one of my, one of my sad regrets in, in comics, and I don't have a bunch, but there's some of them are odd, odd choices. One of my sad regrets is the, uh, the X-Force annual I wrote, I think it was X-Force annual three that was Danny Moonstar focused with the MLF, uh, and Mike Ringo, uh, drew it. And, and it's the only time I got to work with Ringo. It was, it was fantastic art. And uh, my original narration for Danny was rewritten heavily by Bob and, and it was such a shame for me because my original narration was so it's just so much deeper and sadder and conflicted for her uh, and he softened it up everywhere he could because he didn't he didn't want to um, mire the character in as difficult a position as I was putting her in through her own internal monologue more so than a lot of what was happening on the page, you know? Um, so there was a couple of my, my original script for, um, for the wedding issue, I thought was better than the final script. Uh, and I was satisfied with the wedding issue, but, but the, the wedding of Scott and Jean issue, um, X-Men 30, but I think my original script was a lot stronger because it had a much better arc to it, to it. Xavier was a lot more bittersweet and a lot, uh, a lot more, um, wistful about the whole thing because it was such a sign of his aging and such a feeling of, of a loss of youth on his part and what he had done to this youth. So the whole thing was flowing in a much sadder, bittersweet way. The narration 
almost conflicting with what you were seeing on the page with people getting along and blah, 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 you know? Um, and, and Bob softened it up and made it like a straight line all the way through instead of the, the you know, the, the kind of uphill climb that I had it as. Um, so, yeah, little things like that always made made working on those books a little bit different, but difficult um, for me and, and certainly very bittersweet now, 25 years later, but no little violence for me because I never once did not cash the checks that they gave me. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So we would have a million more questions to ask, but we feel like we should give some space to our listeners as well. Um, So do you want to answer some questions uh, that we found online from on Twitter and Tumblr? We could try. All right. We put out some, some general calls and, and, a lot of them, I feel like we, we covered just over the course of the conversation, but there are, there are some some that are a little bit more specific. And there's one, um, Ben asks on Twitter, who are the characters that grew on you the most? Um, the Beast, for sure. Really, really enjoyed writing him and wasn't sure if I would. Um, Scott definitely did. I, 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 liked, I, I like writing Scott and I really, I'm really disappointed at, at kind of like the running joke he's become in, in continuity over the last 10, 15 years. Um, I, uh, on X-Force, I, I always liked writing Cannonball uh, and Cable. Um, I, I really enjoyed, uh, and I felt that I did a lot of good lifting with Cannonball uh, and got him to a really good place as, as the, the next step in leadership for the X-Books. Um, and I think it was all undone within five seconds of me getting fired off X-Force, but, um, I'm not even a hundred percent positive of that because I didn't read X-Men or anything like that. Cause I didn't love Delvin Campbell and, uh, into Uncanny. Uh, I, I didn't read any of that. Um, mm-hmm. so, so, you know, those are the characters that, um, that in hindsight, I, I really, uh, enjoyed. I, I would have liked to have done more with Danny Moonstar, uh, because I always liked Danny, um, as a character. And I had plans to do just that, but it just didn't pan out. Um, so, so that's it. All good choices, and those are definitely some of um, in your in the stories that you've written that we've read. I think that those are some of the strongest characters in there. Yeah, all well, the characters, all the characters I didn't like suck. <laughs> <laughs> well, but especially Sam. I mean, something that's that's come up for us before reading is that it's so clear reading your run especially, but the stuff that precedes it as well, that he's, he should be in sort of in that, in that lineage, in that chain of succession of, of, of sort of leaders of the X-Men and the people who are defining the group. And it's always felt so strange that he, he never ended up that he never ended up there more, more solidly. Like it's bizarre that no one else picked up. Well, you know what? I, I, I've, I've learned that, that what happens is that uh, a lot of writers and editors, um, really summarize their perceptions of characters very, very simply. So the next writer, the next editor in line could think Yokel from Kentucky. So we got to go back to him being a Yokel from Kentucky because that's who he was when we first introduced him 15 years ago. You know what I mean? Um, and, and, and the thing is uh, that you can always, he'll always be the yokel from Kentucky, but now he's the yokel from Kentucky who's done A, B, C, D, E, F, and you just make it a part of the whole. You know what I mean? So the, the, there's ways to, to 
there's ways to keep the DNA of a character properly calibrated while still advancing and growing who that character is. The, the real sin is in, is in denying the DNA uh, totally, which a lot of people do, you know, um, and that, that, but that's just the other side of the same coin. I mean, reverting the DNA to, you know, a, the toddler stage, that doesn't help anything either. And a lot of writers and editors always default to that because it's it's an easier way for them to understand the character, and it makes they think it makes it easier for them to write the character if they don't have to deal with whatever changes the characters have gone through. Man, but it's it, it's such a shame when that happens because I'm thinking specifically of um, your work with Cable over the course of largely X Force, like. We start out with this character who's a total hard ass, who's very closed off, who's keeping secrets from everybody. And over the course of Blood and Metal and his death and his return, he he almost becomes, in terms of his external personality, like uh, he almost becomes a different person in a way that's completely consistent with where he was before. Like I love that we can see that through line. We can see that progress from point A to B to C. And for me, like that's who Cable is. Cable is the character who changes. Well, I appreciate that, but it was really it was really born of desperation because there was so little, there was so little that I, I felt I could work off of from when Rob was plotting the book that gave me a f- real true fundamental understanding of the character. Cause you know, Rob might've had things in his head, but they were never really on paper. We never had, I never had a, a Bible work up on cable. I didn't have, you know, a, a biography of him with details about his life and his past and all of that stuff. I had to make that stuff up through script during the ongoing activities of a plot that I'm not plotting, you know? So, so it was always difficult. And, and when I inherited the book, we knew we were going to be writing cable out of the book for a little while. So I wasn't going to have him for several issues, you know? Um, so, so, you know, I, I always felt very frustrated writing cable in X-Force and even in his monthly book. I mean, I quit his monthly book really quickly. You could tell I wasn't very um, happy with, with, where I was with him. Um, I am very, very happy with a 50 issue run of cable and Deadpool that, that I feel was as definitive a statement as I can make on what I, what I think and who I think this character is. Um, and, and I, and I, I'm always relatively sad if I hear that someone is writing a cable that doesn't pay attention to those 50 issues, you know? Um, but, but I know they do, it happens. So I just sort of, make sure I don't read it. <laughs> Fair. Well, and actually spinning right off of what you were saying about Cable and Deadpool, uh, our listener Aaron Conlon asked on Twitter, what are you most proud of writing, both for Marvel and writing in general? Screw you, Aaron. How dare you ask me that question? Um, <laughs> son of a bitch. You bastards on Twitter. Um, I, uh, I am probably to this day still most proud of, of New Warriors and what, what that meant to me and my career, what it meant to the to the audience that followed that book, um, it, it 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 mattered the most to me in my career because because it basically put me on the map internally at Marvel, externally with retailers, and 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 helped define itself for a, a, a ten to sixteen year old audience that could claim it as their book. 
and it wasn't a book that they and they knew it wasn't a book that a lot of 25 30 year old people were reading who'd been reading since the 70s you know um so new warriors was their book and i i know that because i to this day i get guys coming up in their late 30s early 40s bringing me new warriors comics to to uh conventions where where that was their title and they knew they were in on something that was for them not for the old fogies who'd been reading since the 70s um so so that new warriors is still you know my um my, my emotional touchstone as far as um as far as my comic book work is concerned and was there any other topics you want to touch on before we move on to like um you talking about where people can find you and stuff like that uh, no, not really. Topic wise. No, I, I, I find, I apologize if talking about X-Men is always a, a little bit bittersweet and sad for me, but no, it, no, it is a little, no. it is a little bittersweet and sad for me. Um, it, it, it was, um, it, it was not the greatest working experience in my career, but it was one of the greatest working experiences of my career. So you can see how that becomes a really challenging, problematic, conflicted thing for me. Um, and and anytime I'm asked to talk about the X Men, I always gotta like breathe real deep first, because because my initial natural inclination is is frustration and anger, and even 25 years later. And I don't I don't want it to be that, but it's just a very natural byproduct of of the the trauma I felt I endured. Um, but Fair, but yeah. um, but once you start talking about it in, in regards to character and story and fans that 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 always changes my dynamic with it you know because i still love the characters i still like the stories kind of pretty much sort of um and and i'll always love the fans for me it's much more complicated because i was also on staff Uh, i was there nine to five every single day i was doing a whole bunch of stuff i was editing my own line of comics um so so it was frustrating because i i i I was involved as a writer working in an office that that wasn't being run the way I thought offices should be run, wasn't being run the same way other offices I was writing for were 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 working with me. It, it, so, you know, and, and again, you're talking about, you know, you're talking about a guy who's came to my wedding and I went to his wedding and even he moved out to the West Coast now because he's at D.C. But before up until then, we were having lunch two, three times a year in the city, you know, that the, there is a connection between us on a friendship level, but it never translated well to a writing level and an editor, writer editor relationship, um, even down to New Fifty Two, which was just another abomination. Right, you know? right. Um, so, so, so you know that that's why it always becomes very challenging and very frustrated because the guy that I can have lunch with and and laugh tremendously with and talk about Deep Space Nine with was also the guy that would change his mind every five seconds and, and I'd have to be actually plotting books five pages at a time because they hadn't decided what the end was going to be and how that might affect uncanny. You know what I mean? Cause Scott hadn't come up with Wednesday's idea and, and you know, and it was only Tuesday still. So, you know, so all, all of that just became, became very, very problematic and challenging because I'm also cashing, you know, five figure royalty checks every month. And, and, and I can't, I couldn't say no to that money either because I didn't have kids yet, but I was paying for their college education, you know? Right. So all of it, all of it is a very, uh, tumultuous time. 
he has like the best and the worst of everything. Just all crammed and mishmashed together. Yeah, God, absolutely. Totally on a daily basis. Not, not, you know, it, literally on a daily basis. So, you know, it, it's, it, it was a very, very interesting time. So with that, we are just about out of time. Fabians, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for a lot of great years of X-Books too. It's been my pleasure. I appreciate it. I think that what you guys do and the commitment you guys have shown to it are ridiculously admirable and borderline crazy. Um, <laughs> so I look forward to the, talking to you guys again in 10 years when you get to Cable and Deadpool. Because as we know, Cable is an X-Men character. <laughs> Sorry, Miles. <laughs> nope. Happy about Cable. Just not Cable. We're, we're fine with Cable being. <laughs> Luckily, the title of the book was Cable and Deadpool, so we can just talk about Cable. <laughs> <laughs> just half of it. <laughs> Um, Fabian, is there anything that you've worked on recently or are working on now that people can check out? I finished uh, season one of Outrage, a uh, digital comic book on Webtoon. You can download the app for free or go to webtoon.com. The comic is currently free to read, although it may be put behind a paywall soon. Um, Outrage is a 26-chapter uh, story about a character that can emerge out of your social media and smack the crap out of you if you're being an ass on social media. Um, and and uh, 26 chapters is the, roughly the equivalent of about 140 pages worth of material. Uh, I co-created it with Riley Brown, an artist I've done, uh, I did Cable and Deadpool with, um, and it's a lot of fun. There may be a season two on Webtoon. There may not. We're currently still negotiating the contract. We'll see what happens. Um, and, and really, that's kind of it for comics. I don't do comics too much anymore, to tell you the truth. I, I've been a non-comics professional writer for like mostly for the last 15 years. So right now I'm working on uh, intellectual property management uh, with a company in New York, and we're working on Ultraman. Uh, for Subaraya Productions in Japan, so that that's, oh, that's kind of kind of one of my gigs right now is working on Ultraman stuff. Uh, and where can people find you online if they want to get in touch with you or learn more? Uh, you can friend request me on Facebook, uh, Fabian Yusiesa, and then just get put on a thousand person waiting list. <laughs> I'm sorry. I haven't done a fan page like I should have. Um, uh, but easier to get on Twitter. Uh, it's just at Fabian Nisiesa, my full name. Uh, it's easy to spell. You can read any Nomad Letters page and see how it's spelled. <laughs> um, and uh, and, and uh, I'm more than happy to have you come aboard on Twitter and follow me and also get some snarky political commentary, too. Sweet. Well, Fabian, thank you again. This has been a blast talking to you. I appreciate it, guys. Other than the fact it took you 250 friggin' episodes to get to me, I still really appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we had to make sure that we had enough, you know, to, for you to properly discuss. You're right. We we couldn't we couldn't spend the two hours talking about NFL Super Pro, could we? <laughs> and with that, Jay and Miles explain the X Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. Special thanks to our guest this episode, Fabian Nicieza. New episodes come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, while Fabian won't be on the show proper, we will be diving back into his run on X-Men. As Threnody makes her debut.
I really, in hindsight, wish I'd made NFL Super Pro Mutant. That would have been great. <laughs> <laughs> what might have been. That could have that could have been the most legally complicated piece of intellectual property in the well, world by the, now. If you there know was that. a football league called the XFL, so he could have been XFL Super Pro. <laughs> It all comes together. I'm I'm thinking this is happening right now while we're all talking. We're we're making this come together here. (laughs) All right. 